0: I don't know if I want to say thank you, Howard. I, <laughs> I realize that this is a part of my journey that I don't often share, just snippets of it in the prison when it was needed for illustration purposes of the lesson. And so, yeah, good evening everybody. <laughs> so it's, I did find myself a bit more nervous than I usually am um, in getting ready to share this evening. So I was born to a godly mother and father, Godly father, who loved God very much and loved each other. Besides God, this was the most influential factor. In my life. At a young age of four, with the encouragement and example and prayer of my godly mother, I committed my life to God, which was my keeping power in my life. I knew no other life but God and church and serving on every committee besides the men's department (laughs) serving in church from sunday school youth missions worship to church leadership as a deacon and even then it was an issue many years ago even at school i served on committees up to matric being a prefect in matric in my matric year after i matriculated My parents never had the finances or the vision for me to study further. And so I had to go and work. Fortunately, God blessed me with a good job, and I thank God for that. In a computer, data capture department. And even there, I became the head of that department. And so everything sounds really great, doesn't it? I was doing very well until I sensed a call of God to full-time ministry. And I went to CBI, the now Cornerstone, and there was nothing wrong with Cornerstone, CBI. But it was then that I discovered from that day one that there was something wrong with me. At age 27, after matriculating, working for 10 years, it was the first time for me to now function in a multicultural context. And it was as if the confidence that I had all my years left me. And I had an intense feeling of inadequacy and a very crippling sense of low worth. Up to now, everything I did, where I lived, where I served, where I led, Everything was in my colored community. From school to church to work, even at work, the department I was heading up consisted of 15 colored ladies. I walked in that first day at CBI and did what most people with a low worth, Sense of worth, do I started comparing myself? And I started withdrawing. Here started my fierce battle, which for me was silent but severe and very sensitive. On the first day I met my fellow students. I would ask very intentionally, so what were you doing before you came here? And as I got the answers, I would find my mind, this mind thing happening with me, of comparing myself down to everybody. Oh, so you were a lab technologist, you were a social worker, you were a nursing sister. And I thought, you all studied, you're all very intelligent. And a few came straight out of matric, and I thought, okay, you're still fresh, your brains are still fresh, I worked for 10 years. But the most crazy thing that I did was to say, and the rest as I compared, and the rest of you are all white. So you are naturally intelligent. Don't worry, I discovered that's not true. (laughs) I would sit around the table at break times. It was the custom for our lecturers to sit with all of us as students at break time in the morning before college. And they would have conversation. But I did not participate. I would sit there. But I would not say a word. Because I never felt that what I had to say had much worth compared to what others were saying. And I would think that I wouldn't be able to verbalize eloquently and adequately what I wanted to say, as others did. I felt like my self-worth had crushed. The truth was that part of me, that part of me was never developed. It was crushed from my early days. You see, my mom came from up country. She came to work as a maid in Cape Town. She met God, she met my dad. They both worked for white people whom they very proudly called Madam and Master. I clearly clearly remember as a little girl going with my mom to work only on two occasions during school holidays with Madam's permission but I dare not touch anything. I have no memory of walking or running around that house. I have no memory of the bedroom, of the lounge, and I remember a lot of stuff from very young. The only memory I have was sitting on the high chair in the kitchen. And my parents had this Fearful respect and submission to Madam and Master. As a child, I grew up believing that they, the whites, were better. They were superior. They were more intelligent. They were more rich. They were more everything. And the sad thing is, I accept. On trains, on buses, on beaches, on restaurants. I knew I could not sit and go where they went. Could not enjoy what they enjoyed. And sadly, I accepted that. Where did the change come? At Cornerstone. The same place where I discovered this ugly wound in my life. The people, my lecturers, with their active and unconditional love and humility and no judgment and no discrimination, also my fellow students, made me feel like we're on the same level here. God has a sense of humor. I had a very funny discovery at college. One day, one of my fellow students, Penny, said she, I was going home with her and we had to pick up something at my place. And as we stopped at my place where my parents lived, I lived with my parents that time in Strandfontein, I did the right thing to say, you know, you can come in and meet my mom. And as we came in, I said, Mom, this is Penny. And as I wanted to introduce Penny's mom, my mom said, hello, madam. So madam's daughter and the maid's daughter were in the same class at Bible school. What impacted me the most was someone's story at Cornerstone. It was at this very time of the unrest. Some of my own friends and some of our youth of our church were arrested. It was a time when we were trying to make sense of all this discrimination, all this oppression, all this disadvantage, all this control, this white privilege, which could make one very bitter. And where many other churches and institutions were just sending people home, you know, to get away from what was happening. And the church that time believed you don't mix. They thought it was politics to even speak about anything. And yet we were hurting. But I thank God for CBI. They didn't send us away, they called us into the chapel. To address what we were experiencing and what we were feeling. And I will never forget that day. It was a turning point in my life. One of our lecturers, Dr. Vainant De Koch, and I say his name so that you can, his name says a lot. But that day he shared his story. How his parents and especially his mom was was obsessed with anything that's white. And anything that was not white was unclean. Now she would scrub the chicken and everything because it had to be absolutely white, otherwise it was unclean. And he was not allowed to meet, mix with people of color. And this shaped him, and he too, when he went to seminary, had the challenge when he was put in mixed working teams, cleaning toilets, etc. But the thing that impacted him and then impacted me the most was when they were doing their ministry practical. And he stepped into a children's ward. And there this little black girl jumped off her hospital bed and ran to him, and she put her arms around his legs, and she was hugging him. And everything inside of him cringed, because she was a black girl. And he just took her arms away from his legs, and he pushed her away. And she went away from him. And as they went ministering from bed to bed, when they got to her bed, there was this little girl weeping and holding her doll. He realized that because of his prejudice, he had rejected and hurt this little girl because. He couldn't love and accept her. Because he couldn't love and accept her, she had to find solace in a dead doll. He wept as he told us the story. He told us how he hated the fact that he was born white. That he couldn't help for it, that he was raised with such arrogance and superiority, which he couldn't help for. It was a huge struggle for him, and it was evident evident to us that day. And how some of the choices he made from that point even brought him into conflict with his parents. I then realized that even whites, some whites, are a product of their past. And not all of them are happy and comfortable with who they are and with the privilege they have and had. Some also have real struggles in coming from this horrible thing called apartheid in our country. This journey continues for me and for many others. Like a physical wound, the wounds of our soul in our mind, our will, our emotions, even after healing, it can still be sensitive. Even as an ordained pastor, leader, director of an organization and ministry, I I still have to watch the enemy. That he don't abuse people's actions or people's non-actions, to press on this old wound. For my children, I wanted something different. And so we sacrificed to put them in better and mixed schools. The school was great, but not all the people. I remember when my daughter was in grade four, and she also wanted a birthday party. We, her friends, came to her home like she went to their home. And we invited the friends. Four of them came. Only four. I think it was three colored girls. And Debbie LaMoral brought her white daughter to our colored area and home. Thank you, Debbie. You won't know what that meant. To me, because I didn't want my children to be hurt and wounded the way that I was. At school, I finally had the courage to agree to be on the parent fundraising committee, and because I came from lots of meetings and structure, I was able every time to guide this teacher that was going all over the show with her agenda. <laughs> you know, every time I could guide her back to the agenda so that we could have the meeting in a structured way. And, and she said that night, next week, we will choose a chairperson for our committee. After the meeting, several of the moms, and even the next day as I fetched my daughter at school, they were thanking me and commended me on how you know I could keep the focus of the meeting and said, you should definitely be the chair. What really hurt me the next week in that meeting was not that I wasn't chosen. That was not my ambition or aspiration. It wasn't that I wasn't chosen to be the chair. But that white teacher had already decided on the white mom who she wanted as chair. And we didn't really have a choice. It was like rubbing salt into an old wound. You see, manipulation, whether subtle or blatant, in order to keep the status quo of white control, tell others of color your voice is not good enough. And your worth is not good enough with this environment. You might say that was your perception, but that perception was my reality. But God. I'm not sure what God is wanting to do. You know, God's trying to sort put his finger on this and prove a point to me because as a lot of you know, my daughter now has a white boyfriend from this church. But it's only his skin that is white. <laughs> Thank you, (laughs) Matita. At Connect, coming to Connect was not easy. We did not find the warmth and the welcome that made us feel that this could be home, like we found and had at our previous churches. We are very warm people. It was more a feeling of, you know, it's fine for you to be at our home. Not, this is your home now. You're an equal part, an equal part. The main reason we stayed was because of the amazing ministry to our children. Thanks to Jolene at Sunday School and Shelley, who was leading the youth at the time. We needed an environment where all can feel, and we still need it, where everybody can feel equal. Part of, an um, an important part of this family. We know we're part of God's family. He's saying that. I knew that, but I needed more than that. I needed to know that God's people want me as part of their family where they understand and where we need to understand that when we come from this brokenness, we don't always have the confidence to walk up to you, to break into your comfort group, which is often a white group, and just start talking. Besides God, most of my healing came through people reaching out to me in a way that was so natural and non-discriminatory. that God used them to help restore my self-worth, or rather my God-worth, that was so destroyed by our country and its people. Let us be intentional about reaching out and restoring people's worth. Let us intentionally make time to listen to people's stories before we judge. The worst thing that anyone can be robbed of is your dignity. It robs you of so much, including your confidence, your rational thinking. And above all, it robs you of God's purpose for your life at that time place because you won't do, you won't say, you won't go because of that lack of worth or that low worth or because of feeling that others can do it better. A song that has meant a lot to me these days and I still believe it even for our church but it's walking around these walls I thought by now they'd fall, but you have never failed me yet. Waiting for change to come, knowing the battle's won, for you have never failed me yet. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. I'm still in your hands. That is my confidence. You've never failed. There is hope with God and with people like you who take time to come and listen to the stories of others and who then, we trust, will allow God to use it for the good of others and for his kingdom's sake. Tonight, I I give God glory, thankful to God for my husband who has pushed me when I didn't want to move, when I believed, thought I wasn't good enough for something. I want to thank him for his encouragement and for believing in me. Tonight, I praise and thank God for the hope and the healing that I found. In him, through his word, and through his people. Otherwise, I would not be standing in front of you tonight. To God be the glory. Amen.